I want to uh, share with you that process that I named in that short paragraph briefly, what has been going on really for four years. Four years ago, Pastor Steve wrote a letter to the elder board that said the time was coming for him to retire and encouraged the board to prepare. And uh, that process began there slowly and then progressed. And two, uh, a little less than two years ago, a uh, search committee was uh, formed. And I want you to hear what's important about this is tonight is the first time some of you have had any contact or, or knowledge of Roger and Kim. And I want you to know that this process has been faithful and exhaustive and uh and that's important for you to know. So I've asked Bill Mitchell, who was the chairman of that committee, to share with you briefly what that committee went through in the last almost two years. So I've had a chance on a number of occasions to get up in front of you and talk to you about the process. And, and to a large extent, a lot of what I've shared has been more of what I might call man's words in terms of what's the process, how did we interview people, um, how diligent we were, how many people we talked to, how much background work we did. And that was dominantly to say, be comfortable that the diligence was there in the effort. But really, as I thought about tonight, I wanted you to hear about the other side of it, the side that uh, I think all of us will remember. And that's the side of a, a group of people who we deliberately chose who were very diverse to represent the, the full breadth of Wayside. And those early meetings were difficult because we each came in with believing that we knew what was the most important thing that senior pastor had to bring to the church. And so there were a lot of times that were um, sometimes sharp with each other, sometimes difficult as we were trying to understand and learn and build the bonds of trust and love. But as we walked with each other for about a year and a half, as we prayed with each other for hours and hours, as we saw the life difficulties intervene, you can't just do a search committee absent life. And so to watch people um, change and grow, we built a bond of trust so that as we started evaluating more and more candidates, and as we got further along with some of those candidates into the phone interviews, into the visits, it became there was a bond of trust. So that even if a, one of the members said, I can't tell you why, but this is not somebody I think will work for Wayside, the rest of the committee could pull back and say, that's a good enough answer. We trust you. We respect where you're coming from. And so we went through that, and, and we went through that with a number of candidates. I share that with you to say when it finally came together that the committee really believed that Roger and Kimberly was the person you could feel God work because you knew we all came from so many different directions, from so many desires and so many heart desires for our senior pastor that it really was a work of God and you could feel God's presence. And particularly as the last few weeks of that came in and there were other candidates involved as well, um, to feel God pull us together and say, no, this is the man that we believe is the right man. And so just to encourage you with that, yes, the diligence was done. But at the end, all of the search committee members would tell you, this is something we'll remember for the rest of our lives because of the bond God pulled together. We all laughed that we would never have been friends in the normal terms of things. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, we're different backgrounds. We're different passions. We're different seasons of life. But for this time and for this season, God took us through some difficult times so that he could melt our hearts together. Because he knew, and we all knew, and even the elder board knew when they brought us together, that this needed to be a unified group of people who represented the breadth of Wayside. 
And so that's what we came to at the end. And there was a real sense of peace and of excitement that God was doing something. I shared with the, uh, the uh, speaker we had last weekend, um, who's done a lot of these transitions. I said, many times it felt like we were riding the horse and nobody was holding on to the bridle. And yet it was. God had it in mind. We went places and we thought different thoughts and we, we explored things that you never would have done if you just sat back and said, that makes sense. But in the end, what we really felt was, and what we brought to you is, a unified decision that every, each one of us sought out and said, no, this is the man God is telling me is the right person. And so just want to bring you that assurance. Yes, we did all the diligence, but the thing I'm most excited about is the fact that God moved ten very different people's hearts to where they point where they all could look each other in the face and say, yes, I can vote for this man to both represent me and the group of people I represent at Wayside as this is the person God wants going forward. And so I hope you take comfort in that. And so I'm excited to see Roger and Kimberly here tonight just to to share with you and to to share the excitement with you of meeting them and seeing how we really believe this is a sign of God's faithfulness for all of us. So thanks. Now, when the committee brought one candidate, then the elder board's position, as you have heard in in the worship service, was to analyze that, take that further, and come to a decision of approval to bring to you the congregation. That process looked like uh, a meeting where, uh, uh, I think I'd call it a marathon. We brought Roger in without his family for four days, and he met with over 80 people in three and a half days. This was pastors and elders and former elders and ministry worship uh, ministry team leaders and ABF leaders and uh, that had much access to him and who he is and had their questions and their concerns answered. And so that was the, the next part of the process that, that happened. And this weekend, uh, if you recall from the announcements, uh, tonight is the beginning. Uh, to have these questions that have been submitted, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Tomorrow, Roger will preach at both worship services. And then tomorrow evening, I want to be sure that you're aware and invite you to a casual dessert reception. There will be no official program. Roger and Kim will be here to meet you personally and uh, to to just get to know them a little better. Our effort, our desire is to have you as involved as possible in this process so that when we come to a congregational vote, you can vote uh, with, your, with your heart and with what you, what you see and what you've come to. Okay? Let me, before we get right to it, let me just tell you what's going to happen tonight. Um, uh, we have, uh, I'm going to introduce Roger and Kim to you in just a moment, but we have a number of questions. And the areas that we put them into is under personal, under theology, under worship, you wouldn't have been expected that, would you? Uh, <laughs> under leadership. That's uh, that's, a, that's right. The horns are over here doing the same thing. Okay. <laughs> under <laughs> under leadership and under policy. Okay. And uh, I, I'm, I tell you, I am very excited because I want you to know that your questions as a body, many of them were very similar to those of the pastors and the elders and the leadership 
people. And so we're going to bring those out again. There'll be some of them will be repeat for Roger, but but I think they're good and and they're insightful and they're uh, and they showed great interest. And I I really I want to just for the board I want to tell you we, we really appreciate that interest and for you being here. So let me introduce to you our senior pastor candidate uh, with to be your approval next month, I mean, yeah, in September, but we wanted you to meet him tonight, so please welcome Roger and Kim Pupar. Okay, we're going to get right into it. <laughs> uh, I think... What what many people have asked Roger and would like for you to start with is to just give your testimony briefly, just a, just a just a five minute port, uh, part of your testimony for us. Okay. <laughs> is that the wrong thing to say to a pastor? Yeah. <laughs> At my last church, they joked I had a calendar on the wall instead of a clock when I preached. So uh, <laughs> I I will try to keep everything within the limits of time. I'm really happy to be here with all of y'all tonight. I appreciate everybody being here, and I know many of you are looking at me wondering, what what is this guy? And one of the first questions everybody always asks is, what kind of name is Poopart? And uh, my wife, when we met at the University of Texas, she thought, she and her roommate were walking home, and she said, boy, that was a really nice guy, but the poor woman who marries him. <laughs> so, uh, ladies, be careful what you ever say. Uh, she traded in Morgan for Poopart, so there you go. Um, my last name is French-Canadian, and the reason for that is I'm a first-generation American. My mom is from France. She was uh, born and raised over there, and after the war, she immigrated to Canada, where she met my dad. And uh, my oldest brother was born in Quebec, so I'm a French-Canadian frog living in Des Moines, Iowa right now, but I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, so you figure that out. God has an interesting way of moving people around. The way that I ended up uh, being born in Dallas is uh, kind of a tragic side of things. My, my dad, many of you have probably heard my audio testimony, which is linked on the Wayside website. So if you want the, the larger version, you can go there. But um, just jumping right into it, my dad was a wife and child abuser, very severe abuse. And uh, he made enemies everywhere that we lived. And so my parents moved from... Canada. My second brother was born in Colorado. Myself and my remaining uh, three siblings were born in Dallas. If we had kept immigrating south, we would have been born in Mexico after that. But my mom, when they got to Dallas, said, enough, we're not moving anymore. And uh, that was a very hard situation growing up in. But as the Bible says, God uses bad for good. And in the midst of what was happening there, I was raised Roman Catholic. Our family, being good French Canadians, had a very solid Catholic background. Uh, all of my brothers, there were four boys, were all within a year of each other. And so we were the only family in our church that could field the high mass with all the sons being an altar boy team. And uh, so I was raised Roman Catholic, and I, I learned a very deep foundation of faith in the Catholic Church. I learned fear and reverence for God. I learned a lot about the fact that I am indeed a sinner and need of salvation. But what I never fully was taught in the Catholic Church was God's grace. And so my concept of God was not a good one initially. It was one of fear. And my heavenly father was kind of paralleled by my earthly father. There was a, a level of fear and not a real sense of love. 
And during that time, as I grew up in the home, when I got bigger and bigger, um, I was able to finally start to fight my dad successfully to protect my mom and my siblings. My older two brothers tried and were not able to. And things escalated to the point of weapons getting pulled in our house one night. And um, again, by the grace of God, nobody was killed. But my dad after that told me to pack my stuff and hit the road. So at the age of 16, I was out on the street. And uh, God has a way of taking care of people. The Bible says he'll be a father to the fatherless. And uh, my best friend in high school was Steve Honer. His dad is Harold Honer, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I didn't know this. Being a Catholic boy, I didn't know anything about Dallas Seminary. That was the other side of the fence. But and it was in the Honer's home that I got to see a lot of the truth of the Bible lived out in grace. And really seeing what a healthy Christian family looked like. I was working two jobs to support myself at the time, and uh, one of those was clerking at a law firm while I was kind of a gopher going through high school. And uh, there was a single man there, John Stasny, who was an attorney, and he was gracious enough to allow me to live in a spare bedroom in his townhome. So God gave me a place to stay, and he gave me a family to model uh, the things that I needed to see. And it was through the owner's home and through John Stasny, who was a good Christian man, that I came to understand God's grace. And the Honer family was on a family vacation at Mount Hermon Christian Conference centering in Mount Hermon, California. And uh, Harold was speaking there, and I went with them. And it was at that camp that I heard uh, that salvation was by grace alone and really came to understand. Sometimes I look back and I wonder, was I really a believer in the Catholic Church? And, and I think I probably was, but it was at that point at the age of 16 that I point to and say, for at that point in time, I know for sure that I placed my faith in Christ. So that's what I point to as my spiritual birthday. Came back and really grew in my faith. Uh, started attending Grace Bible Church in Dallas, Texas, and uh, grew. My parents divorced a year later, so when I was 17, right before I went off to college, I was able to move back into the house and uh, went to the University of Texas and studied psychology. And some of you have wondered how did I, if you've seen my resume, I was a Dallas police officer for eight years full-time and then a reserve officer for another three. And people always ask me the question, how did you go from being a pastor, I mean a policeman to a pastor? Well, the simple answer would be the depravity of man that you see will drive anybody to the ministry. But um, I was already headed to the ministry. Growing up, I wanted to help people who were in my situation. And so that's, I had a desire to be a police officer. And then... People began to try to steer me away from that, telling me I was too smart to be a cop, but you can tell I'm not too smart because I did it anyway. But um, I went and to the University of Texas, and I said, okay, I can't be a cop, so how can I still help people? So I studied psychology because I wanted to be a Christian counselor. And uh, I was going to go through and get a secular degree at the University of Texas, go to Dallas Seminary, get a two-year master's to get my foundation, and then go back and work on a secular Ph.D., but... God has a way, if any of you have ever seen him work in your life, he kind of moves you by steps because he knows if he takes you from point A to point Z, you're going to fight him. So he kind of moves us along the way. And so he moved me from counseling to Christian counseling to pastoral ministry. And by the time I was a junior at UT, uh, there again, uh, not the, the best Christian influence school. I, I heard all the Aggies hissing out there, so I know they're there. And... Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of respect for uh, A&M because of, that's more of a, a conservative school where values are taught. UT is called the Berkeley of the Southwest, if you've ever heard that, and it, it was a very liberal school. And UT was a very foundational time for me because at UT you don't really get to play with your faith. There were about 3,000 committed students out of 53,000 students when I was there. 
And so all the Christian groups worked together. And it was there at UT that I really uh, saw the need to be solid in my faith. I had a philosophy class where a guy ripped up a Bible and threw it in the trash and said, what do you have to say about that? And here I am in a lecture hall with 400 other students. And, you know, I raised my hand and I said, that book you just tore up says the fool says in his heart there is no God. And he, of course, wanted to know my name. And... uh, (laughs) I, I honestly ran down to the registrar's office and changed the class to pass-fail because <laughs> I knew he was going to fail me. But what it forced me to do was go back every day and study, study, study because I came prepared to that class. And ironically, I ended up with an A in the class but only got a pass credit because, you know, but I had all these Christians in that class coming up to me week after week saying, keep it up, keep it up. And I'd say, why don't you say, oh, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> And uh, kind of like some of y'all sitting out there, right? <laughs> but it was there that it was a real growing time. Um, God used me in different ways at the campus. I was involved in campus leadership. If you've ever heard of a Christian fraternity, Brothers Under Christ is called Bucks, Beidou Upsilon Chi. Myself and three other guys uh, birthed the fraternity there at the University of Texas while I was there. There were two hazing deaths that took place uh, at UT when I was there. And we said they have all this great all-male fellowship and they've corrupted it. So... God had me in a refining fire there and was really growing me in my faith and and let me be a part of some great things, including meeting my lovely wife at a Campus Crusade event. She was in Crusade. I was in InterVarsity, but here again, the the two groups working together. And uh, about graduation time, I had decided I would like to marry this spiritual-looking lady over here, and uh, I needed a way to pay for not only a family I was about to have, but also a seminary because I was headed to Dallas Seminary. So I went back to Dallas, joined the Dallas Police Department, and got through the academy, my training, my probation, and then started Dallas Seminary the next year, was married uh, that second year, and worked my way through seminary as a Dallas police officer. And God gave me great ministry opportunity as a police officer uh, there in the community and with other officers. And that's been a vital part of my ministry wherever I am. I try to be a chaplain for the local law enforcement community because they are a very unique group that has some very tough things and God has given me a window into their world and credibility. So if God leads me here to Wayside, then I will be talking to the Castle Hills and San Antonio Police Departments about being involved with them and seeing how I can be a part of uh, reaching the community and also the Officers for Christ there. But God used uh, that time in my life going through seminary. It was a great balance to, uh, again, be dealing with the the nuts and bolts of the depravity of man while I was wrestling with the ivory tower issues of theology. Uh, graduated from Dallas in 1995. I crammed a four-year program into eight years, going through part-time, <laughs> and uh, finished with the police department full-time but stayed on as a reserve officer and uh, went out to Country Bible Church in Kaufman, Texas, pastored there for seven years. Uh, God gave us some great ministry and still have wonderful friends and connections to that community and church. And after seven years there, we had just come to a point where we felt God had grown our our gifting and and abilities a little beyond the the ministry that we were at. And uh, opportunity had opened at First Federated Church. And uh, for about two years, churches had been calling us, asking us to leave. And we always said, no, it's not time, not time. And finally, we went to First Federated in Des Moines, Iowa. I had to look it up on a map. I wasn't sure where Des Moines, Iowa was. Uh, and I pictured flat cornfields, and uh, it's really a beautiful state. Lots of rolling hills and lakes and rivers. Uh, Des Moines means between the rivers. And we found the people there to be wonderful. It's been a, a wonderful time of ministry for four years, some difficult times. 
as well. And uh, now we're at the point of being here at, at Wayside and looking forward to what God would have us do. And let me just back up and pick up two important things that happened in that process of, of our uh, growing up. Um, I told you about my dad, and one of the key points of um, God really working in my life was about my sophomore year in college. God had impressed upon me that I needed to find my father and tell him I forgave him because if I was going to call myself a Christian, I needed to uh, do what Christ did and forgive those who had hurt him. And I wrestled with God. It wasn't an easy decision. And if you've wrestled with God, you know he ultimately wins. And after a, a period of about six months of fighting him, I drove back to Dallas, found my dad. Nobody in my family had anything to do with him. He had disowned me at, uh, when my mom, when the divorce happened, he said it was all my fault and said I was no son of his. And so I found him. I took him out to dinner and told him that I forgave him. And uh, he told me, well, I don't know why you're forgiving me. I never did anything wrong. And uh, the carnal side of me wanted to push him out of the car doing about 60. But uh, <laughs> God was at work in my life, and instead I shared the gospel with him. And he told me that he knew all those things, and uh, he professed to be a believer. I pray he, he is. I continue to pray for him. I haven't yet seen fruit in his life to know that there, that is the fact. But God gave me the privilege of leading my mom and uh, four of my five brothers and sisters to the Lord. And so that's been a real neat time. My mom went home to be with the Lord a year and a half ago. So uh, it was a, a real special time to, to be involved. She gave me birth and to uh, give her birth. And another very um, important thing that happened is uh, Kim and I have been married for 18 years. And if you've seen the, the pictures, you know we have little kids. And uh, Sarah is six in September. Hannah will be three uh, just in, well, a few days, two days, she's going to be three. And then uh, Zachary is about 16 months old. And um, we went through 12 years of infertility, and uh, the doctor said we would never be able to have children, but uh, God's a miracle-working God. And uh, that's why we named our kids as we did, Sarah Elizabeth. Sarah is... Abraham's wife, Sarah, and her middle name, Elizabeth, is uh, John the Baptist's mom's name. She was, both of those women were uh, barren. And then Hannah, you know her story. And Zachary is uh, Zacharias, Elizabeth's father, uh, husband. So not that we need a, a reminder of God's faithfulness, but um, they're great blessings to us. And there again, it shows just how God works in barren times sometimes in, in lives. And so... I know some of you, as you sit here tonight, are going through some difficult times in your own life. And uh, just uh, continue to hold on to God. I, I can't promise you that he will always bring your prayers to fruition as you desire. But uh, sometimes he has us wait a long time. And uh, in his infinite wisdom, at 41, he has me changing diapers instead of dealing with diplomas. If, uh, <laughs> if he had followed my plan, we'd be uh, probably looking at Sarah going into college soon. And so instead... I'm at a different stage in life, and uh, that's been a real joy to have just little kids running around the house and keeping me balanced. So did I go over five minutes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next question. Please identify some of the modern authors and teachers who carry the greatest influential weight and with whom you identify in your personal spiritual development? 
Well, there are so many books that I read, probably I'll just zero in on those that I like to read whatever they put out. And so um, Chuck Swindoll is, is a favorite. If you've ever been exposed to Chuck's ministry, you know that he balances great Bible teaching with uh, storytelling, which I think is very important. It's one of the ways I try to preach. I use a lot of word pictures and stories. I find that allows people to uh, grasp and remember truth. And uh, I appreciate Chuck's sense of humor. And so uh, I, I attempt humor in my sermons as well. And so uh, please be kind to me whenever I throw a joke out. <laughs> uh, he is somebody who's very influential to me in, in a number of areas. And uh, I would say John Maxwell. He is great in the area of leadership. And so I always read whatever he puts out. There are a number of other leadership authors. But again, balancing the spiritual with the leadership side of things. He was a former pastor, so he understands the church world as well as uh, just some of the the key things about leadership in general. Uh, Those would be the two primary authors that I would say just about anything they put out I I read. But again, I read far and wide, and uh, I read both liberal things as well as conservative things. I subscribe to uh, liberal magazines like Time so that I can see how things are being dealt with in a a day-to-day, a weekly basis in the world so that I can bring things into sermons that are relevant and understanding the different worldview, newspapers, magazines, just different things. But those would be the two primary authors I'd point to. This is a long one, so listen. All right. (laughs) What is your mindset or plan to address wounded people? I have heard situations like pray more, read more Bible, study, memorize, witness, be disciplined, etc. People in church are doing lots of this, and it comes across plastic and artificial. It misses the deeper healing that makes these things authentically an outflow, not a cover-up. Where are you on this? Well, whoever wrote that question, I, I can feel pain in it, and I'm sorry for, for that. I know that churches sometimes are not safe places. So the first thing that I would say is I would try to create a, a community where people understand that it's a safe community. Uh, you read the book of Acts, and they created a community before they reached the community. So as a church, we need to be loving each other. Um, one of the things you'll hear me say sometimes is, you know, the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, but truth is like ice. It can be crystal clear and just as cold. And as people, sometimes we do that. We forget to put the love aspect into what we're sharing. Um, I'm a walking wounded just as anybody here is. I don't, I don't care how well you think your life is put together. Many people put, to, put a facade up. We all have pains and hurts. Some of ours are deeper than others, and the Bible tells us to comfort one another with the comfort we've received. And so God has chosen in my life to put a lot of hard things in that I would not have chosen, but I've seen how he's used them for good. So to that individual, I would say, first of all, creating an environment of of care and concern and love, and then one where there would be the ability for them to share their, their hurts freely. And, uh, you know, it's hard to do sometimes. We would establish deeper systems. I know Wayside has a pastor of counseling, John Ford, so somebody like John would be brought into speed in a a greater need. The women's ministry has some wonderful ladies involved for mentoring and walking alongside some wounded ladies. So those would be some of the key aspects. Certainly what was mentioned, those spiritual disciplines, are things that I would also then bring in, but it's all part of a process. You just don't start there. It's like when somebody suffered a, 
a tragic death or a situation, um, I don't come in and immediately deliver theology to them. They're, they're not needing that at the moment. What they need is somebody just to sit with them and cry with them, hold their hand and pray with them, and, and that's what I'll do. And you read the book of Job, and his friends were of comfort to him as long as they had their mouth closed. And uh, <laughs> as soon as they began to uh, share their, their wisdom is when Job wished they would go away. So... There, there's a time to sit and just be with somebody, and then there's a time to share the, the other things that are needed there. Favorite scripture verse? My favorite scripture verse would be John 19.30. Um, as Christ was hanging on the cross, he said, It is finished. And as you read that in the original Greek text, the word he used is tetelestai. And that's a big fancy Greek word. The T-E-T-E beginning tells you it's a perfect form, which means it's complete. The middle verb is teleo, which means to pay a debt, to pay in full. And what he literally was saying is, Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. And what Christ was saying is, paid in full. I've written the check good for eternal life, and I'm holding it out to the world. And whoever will take and receive it. And as a former Catholic who was living a life of sacramental graces, wondering how many IOUs were in the big cash register in the sky and if I put enough credit in to to make it, to hear that there was a big red paid-in-full stamp at the bottom of my debit account and God didn't need me to put anything in the register, that he he covered it all. Uh, For me, that uh, that is a foundational truth that I will preach and teach and that that has impacted my life, and so that's my favorite verse. What makes you laugh almost without fail? Well, uh, my kids, but they make me cry a lot too. <laughs> Just, uh, it's amazing what kids will do for you. For instance, Sarah, our six-year-old, uh, John Gordon's daughter, Susanna, was coming over to graciously watch our kids while we were at one of our uh, meetings this weekend. And uh, we told her she was an Aggie because Sarah was born in Dallas and she's learned to do the hook'em horn. So we said, you know, when, when you see Susanna do this, and we said, now she'll probably go like this and say, Gagamiggy's back. I mean, Gigamaggies. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, so we said she, she'll probably do this back and she'll say, Gigam. And Sarah said, what, what does Gigam mean? And I said, you know, that's a good question. Why don't you ask her? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I promise. Sarah's response was, oh, I know, Daddy. Gigam is Spanish for hook'em horns. (laughs) She said that. And so um, she's a very wise little girl. so my kids make me laugh. Uh, you know, they're, they're a real joy, but also there, there are times they can just drive you to the other side of the fence. Yeah. Okay, we're going to transition into theology for a little bit. Do we have to? And, uh, <laughs> uh, do you prefer topical or expositional preaching? I do both. I, I do more expositional than topical, but uh, the system that I, I typically try to do is I will start out with, say, a New Testament book, and I'll start in one one, and I'll preach to the end of the, the book. And I will go verse by verse, break it into sections. Um, You know, I break it in. If you get on Federated's website, firstfederated.org, you can see the book of Ephesians that I just finished. It was about a six-month series. And so I will break it down. And yet within those things, you deal with situations like, you know, when you get to Ephesians 5 and 6, you're dealing with family issues. So 
even when you're doing a book study, you're able to do topical sections within a study of Scripture. But what I'll do is preach a book from beginning to end, and then I will do a topical series typically in between. And the reason I do that is if you've been in a, a book study for three, four, six, maybe nine months, at one end, people want to kind of have a break. The other end is there are needs in the community or the church that need to be specifically addressed. Now, remember when you're doing a, a book study, when things come along like Easter or the second holiest day, Mother's Day, those type of things, <laughs> you, you need to make sure that you, you know, touch on those. So it's not just a straight study. And then also, what I'll do, when I do a topical study, it allows me to be able to address needs specifically within the church that we're dealing with, uh, or the community. And then I will do an Old Testament book, starting in 1-1 through the end. You know, the Bible says to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And there are some fantastic things, even in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, I won't necessarily do a full book study of Numbers, but there are some great things in there. Or if I'm doing a larger book like Genesis, rather than doing all of Genesis, which could take two years, I may then do a character study where I'll pull the story of Joseph out and do a full study on Joseph through Genesis or those type of things. And so when I finish the Old Testament book, then I'll do a topical, and then so I alternate. And that allows me to cover the whole counsel of the Word of God, address the relevant needs within the community, of course take breaks like when 9-11 happened, no pastor in his right mind said, well, next Sunday I was dealing with this. You deal with the needs at the moment. Uh, not only does it allow me to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, but it allows me to deal with very hard things that I as a, a person would not deal with on my own. You know, I, I can read some of these subjects coming and go, I don't want to preach this. But God wants it preached. And not only does it force me to deal with some of the very difficult issues, but for the person sitting in the pew, they can't say, well, Roger's just got an axe to grind because, hey, it was next in the Bible. It, we, we knew he was coming to it. And I find people are really, in fact, looking forward uh, to some of those hard things that are coming up. I don't look forward to the emails and letters that then follow, but I try to deal with it. So that's how I address it. Since prayer is foundational for the church... How do you incorporate prayer in your corporate worship services and your personal life? Well, I think prayer is the foundation to all we do. One of the things that I've been most impressed with the search process here at Wayside is just how bathed it's been in prayer. I hope you all know just the hard work that your search committee has done, not because they've put me before you. You may want to stone them when, when it's all done. I don't know, but... They, they have been prayerful at every step of the process. And in all the meetings that I've had with the leadership, the elders and others, right before this meeting, the elders gathered over in uh, the other building, and we had a time of prayer before we came out here. And so prayer undergirds everything. And in worship, it's not a tack-on. It is, it is a part of the whole uh, process of worship. And so prayer is something, though, that unfortunately we can make stale. You know, well, here it is at this point in the service, so we do it. I like to see prayer done differently at different times. Sometimes it will be a time of silence where we allow the congregation to engage. Sometimes there will be points in a sermon message where I will stop preaching and we will pray for a need. Like when Katrina happened, I preached a sermon on that. And we stopped at several points in the sermon, and we put uh, needs for the people of New Orleans up on the big screen, and we had the body engage in corporate prayer right there. And so prayer doesn't have to be done one particular way, uh, but prayer needs to be a part of every worship service. It needs to be a part of my life. 
That is the power source for me. If, if I get up here, you know, if, if there is no prayer in the pews, there will not be power in your pulpit. You as a body have to be praying for your pastor, for your leaders, for your ministry. So I see that as, a, as a, a, an undergirding to everything. For me personally, I have to be in prayer. I, I pray right now for all kinds of things, my kids especially. Um, I pray every night for their future spouses. It may be God's will that they remain single. The Bible says singleness is a gift. And maybe one of my two girls or my son will not have a spouse. But I'm praying right now for the men and the women that my children will marry and asking God. They may not even be born, but I'm already praying for them. So I pray at those levels. I pray, my wife and I pray every night together. We, um, we pray as a family. I pray with my little girls at night. And, you know, they have different levels of understanding. And it's been really fun. Uh, I had the privilege of leading my daughter Sarah to the Lord back in March and just watching her grow and develop in her faith. Hannah's prayers at this point are, Dear Jesus, thank you for the yummy food. You know, she's a three-year-old, but she's already learning that we talk to God, and every night we say, what's one thing we want you to be thankful for uh, tonight? Tell us one thing that you were thankful for. Sometimes it's as simple as getting to play outside, and sometimes it's something deeper. So it is is a, a part of everything that I do, Gary. Dispensational or covenant replacement theology? I'm a dispensationalist and uh, being trained at Dallas, if you're familiar with Dallas, and now I'm old school dispensationalist, not the progressive that you've heard something about coming in. And I won't bore you with all the fine you know, details of everything. If you'd like to discuss that, I'll, I'll meet with the three of you afterwards who are interested. <laughs> but um, I believe in a literal hermeneutic of the Bible. That's my uh, system of interpretation, and that's how I approach the Scriptures, and I believe that it, it points to... Uh, a dispensational system that should I stop before I get in trouble? All right. Uh, what is your position on eternal security? I'm for it. <laughs> I believe the Bible teaches it. Uh, you read John 5:24. You read John 10:28 and 29. You read just throughout the Bible. Romans 8. It, it tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the the picture is. Uh, there in John 10:28 and 29, he's placed us in his hand, and he says that he's closed it around, and God, his Father, has put his hand around his, and no one can snatch him out of his hand. So, um, and I thank God for that, you know, because if it was something we could lose, uh, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Uh, sign gifts. Okay. Sign gifts is one of those uh, very broad topics. Again, I'm not sure how this relates here at, at Wayside, but I believe that the, I'm going to assume that that's talking about charismatic gifts like healings, tongues. I mean. What is your position on sign gifts? I'm just. Okay. Um, I don't believe that a lot of the things that are labeled as sign gifts that we see in the American churches today are valid. Um, when you read the scriptures, it tells us that the sign gifts were given for specific purposes. Tongues were given for the edification of the gathered body. The scriptures are clear that unless there's somebody to give an interpretation that it should not be done in a, in a setting, a public worship setting. Sign gifts were given for uh, a number of reasons. As Christianity was being brought into the church world at that day, it was very dark and people didn't know. You know, Paul's like, you preach this God, we preach this God, who is he? 
and it had to be a manifestation of his power. So sign gifts were done not only to manifest God's power to show the legitimacy of the real, true, one true God, but it was also to reveal God's word. But the Bible tells us that his revelation is closed. He's given us what we need today. So I don't believe that the sign gifts are, are active, uh, what people label them today. Uh, do I have God in my little box where I say, you know, I've got them all figured out? No, God can be God. And if he manifests himself in ways that I don't understand, you know, that's okay. Uh, he's God, and I'll let him do that. Yeah. He is God, and I am not. That's right. Lordship salvation. I think lordship salvation is one of those things that has taken on a life of its own. If you even talk to John MacArthur, he'll tell you that things have gotten beyond what he ever anticipated. I think Lordship Salvation had a legitimate concern when it first came out about some of the easy believism as it's been labeled of Christians. We sometimes, you know, say, I've got my fire insurance in my back policy and I can go live my life however I want. And we have a bad testimony with the world around us. And, you know, Matthew warns us, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do all these great things? And Christ is going to say, I didn't know you. And so Lordship Salvation tried to deal with a problem they saw in the church, but I believe it took it too far. Um, I think Lordship Salvation confuses the second step of sanctification with the first step of justification. The Bible tells us when we come to faith in Christ, we're justified. Then when we walk through the gate of heaven, we are glorified. That's when we're made perfect. And sanctification is that day-to-day process of living here on earth. And I think that Lordship Salvation... Some of those who have taken it too far, you know, the proponents that have said, if Christ isn't Lord of all in your life, then he's not Lord at all, have confused the sanctification step with the justification and merged them together. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took us where we were, at our worst, in rebellion to him, and he died on the cross to tell us die, paid in full. Now, once we come to him, he doesn't want us remaining as a baby believer. He says it's time to grow. It's time to change. It's time to be sanctified, to do away with this stuff in your life. But I don't roll that step of saying get your life right first and then come to him. So I would say that uh, I am not a proponent of lordship salvation, but I believe that, you know, that's why some of that has come about. Eschatology. Uh, eschatology is one of those 50-cent words for uh, church, uh, end times type things. I've already said I'm a dispensationalist, so I can, uh, I'm not sure how to delve in. My eschatology, I'm pre-tribulational. I'm premillennial. Uh, I know some of you sitting here will disagree with that, and that's okay. You can be wrong. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Please don't throw anything. I, I don't break fellowship over these issues. Uh, if you know the Lord is your Savior, then we're okay together. Uh, if you disagree and I disagree on these type of things, God will take care of it in the end. Um, I think we need to be about the main things. Now, because my system of interpretation of the Scriptures is a literal hermeneutic, there are times I will come to passages of Scripture where I have to come down and present a theological position. And I will preach what I just stated and I will always give that disclaimer at the beginning that if you feel differently, that's okay. Uh, but this is how I believe that the Bible teaches these events will occur. So that's how I approach eschatology. Okay, the easy stuff is over. We're going to worship now. Oh, let me, let me get a drink of water here. <laughs> we
With the movement of seeker-friendly, market-driven churches sweeping the nation, how do you plan to combat the feeling and emotional the feeling emotional salvation that is spreading through Christianity today? Well, that's a very valid criticism. Uh, in fact, that's part of the reason that we've left our current church is they were moving toward a, a seeker type of ministry. At least some in the leadership wanted to do that. There was a, another church in town where the pastor would ride a motorcycle down the center aisle. And, uh, you know, he had application for why he was doing it, but they thought that's what I should be doing. Um, they didn't quite tell me I had to have the motorcycle, but they kept saying, why aren't you doing some of these things? And so what I... The way that I view that is we do not have to compromise the Word of God. The churches I've always pastored have been seeker-friendly, but not seeker-sensitive. Now, those are loaded terms. So seeker-sensitive, if you followed the movement, what it essentially says there... Now, there are different levels on, on the thing, but a seeker-sensitive type of service it goes to the point where they say you should not preach about the blood of Christ, you should not talk about sin, you should not talk about things that are going to turn off non-believers. Well, there are a couple of reasons that you need to be preaching those things. First of all, the non-believer needs to know that they're lost and they need the Lord. Um, if I walk into a donut shop, they're not selling tires in there. They're selling donuts. And I know when I see the sign that says hot, fresh, Krispy Kreme donuts, it's donuts. And when somebody walks through the doors of a church, I'm unapologetic that we are talking about Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross to pay the penalty in full for your sins. So when you talk about a seeker-sensitive church that wants to remove these elements, if you do that, then I don't have anything to talk about. So don't come and waste your time listening to me. So I am not about a seeker-sensitive ministry. Now, I'm about being seeker-friendly. We as believers have our own lingo, our own theology, our own way of doing things, and it's easy to get in the us for and no more mentality of, okay, we're all in and we like our country club the way it is, so don't let those people in because they're going to ruin things. That's not biblical either. And so what we need to be about is never dumbing down the message, but Paul said that he contemporized the message. He didn't, he didn't compromise, he contemporized it. He said he became all things to all men so that he might win them to Christ. And so I will use different ways of presenting the truth in a culturally relevant thing. For instance, at our church this past year for Father's Day, we did a Father's Day car fest, and we had a, a, a car show. We had hot rods and old antiques and other things out there, and we had a picnic after church. And, you know, for Father's Day, we bring the men in and we beat them up and we tell them how they're failing as fathers. And that's my fault because I'm the guy in the pulpit doing it. But this year I said, I want to I encourage the men. And we want to have this as an event where we can bring non-church people in. And so we had this hook of come and see these hot rods and different things. And we're going to have a picnic afterwards so that you and your family, you know, can do these things. Now, here in San Antonio, that will have to happen in January. In Des Moines, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit cooler. Uh, we'd be sweltering the, you know, when the asphalt turns liquid, you don't want to be out there looking at cars. So when you try to be seeker friendly, you can do those type of things that will allow. I will use those words. But again, I try to do it culturally relevantly. I try to do it in a way that communicates love and lets people know. So um, you, you've got to be very careful. But I think as churches, we need to remember that the truth never changes, but the way that we teach the truth does. And so we look for ways to engage the culture in a relevant way that does not dishonor God in how we present his word and teach his truth. 
How do you feel about a blended worship service or services? Oh, wait a minute. Let me finish the question. <laughs> rather, uh, how do you feel about a blended worship service or services rather than a separate traditional and contemporary service? This is where the bulletproof screen comes up, right? <laughs> All right. This is where I miss my bulletproof vest as a police officer. You know, churches, all churches, Wayside is not the only church. All churches deal with worship wars. And I think it'd be the, the greatest reason that we fight about worship is because we've forgotten what worship is. Worship is for an audience of one. It is where we come before God and we declare his worthship. And it's not about coming to church and saying, entertain me, meet my needs. If I were to go into the parking lot right now and get in the first 20 cars, I would find a different radio station and probably 15 of the 20 cars tuned in. If I rifled through your CDs and cassettes or 8-track tapes, maybe a few of you may still have those, I would find different music for all of y'all. So... To say that we're going to come in here and we're going to have five, six, seven, ten songs maybe and everybody here is going to be happy is impossible. It's not going to. And so I think the question has to first come down to the theology of worship. And what you do is you teach the body exactly what I said. This is for, for an audience of one. It is not for you. If you don't like the music, then read the words and just mouth them as a prayer to God. You don't have to listen. You don't have to engage at the if the percussionist is too loud. You know, it's funny. The church that I pastor, it has a 4,200-seat sanctuary that I was pastoring. And the sound booth is in, this, in the balcony, and we had a decibel meter. And do you know what the loudest instrument was in the sanctuary? It's the organ. The organ would peak out at 120 decibels, which will break your eardrums. The drums were coming in at 95. So... A lot of times when people say it's too loud or it's this or that, it's because I just don't like it. It's not my instrument. So what we do is we have to come down to understanding we're here to worship God, not have our needs met. Now, part of what happens in a service is it's to be participatory, not performance-driven. And I know some churches make that mistake. And so the people in the pews are rightfully upset because they come and they watch a show, but they've never been brought into the worship experience. So there has to be a balance in how we do this. But if you come on a Sunday and, you know, we had what we called prayer cards at my last church, and more sin took place on the prayer cards than anything else. Well, that in the parking lot as people fought over spaces. But we, we changed the name to Caring Communication Cards because <laughs> we, we just wanted to hear you communicate. We wanted to, you know, let people, you know, voice their opinions. And I want to know what people are thinking. So don't ever feel you... If God leads me here, you can't write or let me know. Just please be respectful in how you do it. So I, I would laugh because I'd read the cards, and we had a blended service. And so I said all we were doing was making everyone mad. But I would the same Sunday service, we would get somebody who would write a card, where are the hymns? Three cards later would say, where are the choruses? And I'm going, were you all in the same service? And the problem comes in defining worship. If I tell you to define contemporary worship today, you're all going to have a different understanding of what that is. If you're a baby boomer, to you, contemporary worship is going to be the Maranatha hymnal. 
You know, that, that was your song. So for you, that's it. If you talk to a 20-something, that's old traditional. Well, if you talk to a senior saint, it's how great thou art sung with only the hymn. I mean, only the organ. So defining what is contemporary or blended or traditional. What I like to do is engage everything. I, I enjoy all types of worship. And you know what's interesting is some of the younger generation appreciates what I call the smells and bells type of worship, the high church liturgical. When I was a Catholic and I would swing the incense there, that's what kids today are moving more toward this Gothic, Orthodox type of worship. The Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago had a front page article that said Rebels with a Cause, and it talked about the kids rebelling against the worship of their parents and wanting to go back to this high church type of worship. So trying to say that I'm going to be a politician where I can promise you a chicken in every pot, it's not going to happen. What I'm going to say is I'm not quota-driven, so it's not going to be, well, we had two hymns, you know, this service, and we only had one, or we didn't have one that service, so we failed. That's not how it's going to be. Again, you want to keep worship fresh. So some services, you may have five hymns and one chorus. And the next week, you might have one hymn and all choruses. The next week, you may have none of what you wanted. My policy is to try to learn the the voice of the body. Each church has a different DNA. Each church has a different set of songs they sing. And so when I come in, what I'm going to do is find out what what are you all used to? What is it that you... What speaks to you? What engages you in worship? And then if we're introducing new songs, my policy is to have no more than one new song in a Sunday because they're, again, participatory. If we've got three new songs up here and you don't know any of them and you check out, well, then you're not worshiping. So you you have one new song, and then maybe you have that song for three weeks in a row so that you get to know it so it becomes comfortable for you. So it's one of those things. Now, I know Wayside has three services, and some people... The question may be coming, well, are you going to have the same worship in all the services or different? I think, you know, because people say, well, there's a danger in having different worship-type services because then you create different churches within a church. Y'all already have different churches within a church. If you come normally on a Saturday night service and you didn't know tonight was a congregational meeting, you're wondering where all these folks came from. But for those of y'all who are here on Saturday night, you probably don't know most of the Sunday morning people. And if you go to the morning Sunday service and not the afternoon one, you probably don't know the same people. I would venture to say you maybe have gone to the same service for a year, but you don't know the person who's sitting one section over because you've never crossed the aisle to meet them. So you already have different churches within a church. And here again, in being able to engage the community in a relevant way, I think that you can you, you have the benefit of having multiple venues now to have different worship styles that will engage and speak to the hearts of different people. So if I come here, that would be something that I would maintain. Now, there may have to be some tweaking. I know you all are searching for a worship pastor. That's going to be a key person to come in. Uh, so that's going to be a very you know needed thing. One of the things that I've noticed about Wayside, just in talking to the staff and leadership and what little exposure I've had to the congregation, maybe I'll have a different picture tomorrow, but I don't think that it's as represented. uh, San Antonio, from my understanding, is about 60% plus Hispanic, and I don't see a 60% Hispanic congregation here. And Wayside, just like the church I was pastoring previously, was more of a commuter church, but we were also becoming a community church. 
one of Wayside's strengths is planning churches. Well, there has to be a way to engage the Hispanic community around us. So maybe we need to plan an iglesia here, a Spanish-speaking church here. And the same thing, bringing in some Spanish music into some of the services and things that will then again allow us to be culturally relevant to the community and the people around us that we're trying to reach. Um, But, you know, again, you don't tip the scales. You don't swing from one end to the other. But these are things that I think you you have to look at doing as as a church and saying, how are we going to reach San Antonio, our Jerusalem, our Judea, as God has put us here at this location? Okay. Okay. The other question was, how do you define worship? I think you answered that. Uh, a couple of questions about First Federated experience. Okay, okay. Uh, were the, what were the circumstances or reasons for your leaving First Federated, and do you see the possibility of the same thing happening at Wayside? I don't see the possibility of the same thing happening here. Now, of course, anything can happen. But when I went to First Federated Church, it was presented to me as a different ministry than it really was. And there were a number of reasons for that. There was one staff associate who was there for 14 years, Uh, The previous two pastors said that he needed to be terminated, but the leadership and the pastors never moved to do that. Unfortunately, that was left for me to deal with when I walked through the doors. It's a great way to cripple a ministry right out of the chute. But um, when I looked at Federated, if I were to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say it was about a a 7.5. As I looked at the ministries, the programs, the philosophy, the vision, the things that were happening... Within about two to three weeks of getting there and digging into the ministries, I found it was about a three, three and a half. It was a wholly different church than was presented. They said small groups were foundational to the ministry. They told me out of a church of about 1,200, they had over five, 600 people engaged in small groups. I found out it was less than 150 people when I got there. They talked about um, the leadership training that was taking place, some of the uh, electives and ABFs that were taking place. Again, we found that there were a number of ministries that were just present on paper. Uh, Missions was purported to be a main pillar of the church, but it was over in its own orbit. It had its own budget, its own missions committee, its own direction, and and very little of the congregation was engaged in missions. Uh, The same thing was happening. They had another ministry board within evangelism. Local evangelism was supposed to be important. They had two associate pastors of evangelism. They had their own budget and board, and they were a church within a church. And so... Coming in, it was a whole different ministry than than what I thought it was. So I've been asking a lot more questions here at Wayside because uh, just because I've been presented with things, I've been doing my own uh, undercover investigation as an ex-cop. <laughs> and I also have the advantage of, of knowing a pastor here in town, one of my best friends from seminary that I've stayed connected with for the last 11 years. We've been accountability partners over the phone is Jeff Harris. Uh, his dad, George, pastored Castle Hills here, and Jeff is over at Grace Point. And so Jeff's been able to fill me in on y'all as well. And he he has had a lot of great things to say about Wayside. And so this is a church that has a good reputation. The things that y'all present as being foundational, I believe, are foundational. One area of weakness that I don't think is as strong as it needs to be, I think back in 1972 there was a statement written that Wayside wants to be a church that is not only about building believers, but also about reaching the lost. And from what I've heard from the leadership, the lack of conversions and baptisms and things that are happening, again, God is the one who draws all men to himself. You can do everything you want programmatically, but unless God gives you the fruit, it's not going to happen. But if you're not seeing the reproducing numbers at the same level, it says maybe there needs to be a little tweaking of the emphasis and direction 
And my primary gift is an evangelist. And so if God brings me here, uh, you'll see more of that flavor, you know, coming in some of the areas of emphasis in ministry. Um, I know Pastor Steve was a great guy with a great heart and has done so many great things in this church. And uh, my job is going to be to come alongside what Steve and Connie have built here over 34 years and say, how can we fine-tune it? How can we make this, you know, better and more effective in reaching the community? The staff you all have got in place here is night and day difference from what I was walking into at Federated as I've just met with your pastors and gotten to know their hearts. Um, You know, Rick, who was just brought on six months ago, just his heartbeat and the things he wants to do uh, to reach John Gordon and John Ford and, you know, Jason and the other Rick and all the guys that you've got here that I've seen. And then when you look at your directors at Marsha and Belva and the people who are here, you have got a great team in place. And so I'm excited about being able to come alongside this team that is in place. Will the chemistry change? Of course it is. It doesn't matter who you bring here. It's going to change the chemistry. But, what you know, there's a saying in the Navy, you don't change the set of the sails in the first watch until you figure out why they're set that way. And so I'm not going to walk through the doors and start changing things. Now, certainly if there's uh, something that needs to be fixed and, and we see it and know it, we're going to be about dealing with that immediately. But y'all's leadership, your elders, your staff, is already about making some very radical and, and very strategic course corrections that I think y'all have been appraised of and brought on board. So as I look at where Wayside is going, uh, the macro issues are all the things I would be attending to already, so I don't feel like I'm going to have to come in here and be fighting uphill like I was doing at Federated. So that's how I see things being different. A related question says, briefly state how you would initially address the Wayside Elders so that unlike the first federated misunderstanding, you and the wayside elders would start off and remain on track. Uh, I call you guys king, right? No. (laughs) I I think there's a misunderstanding. Um, I started at federated in a very good position with the elders. In fact, they were very glad I was there and dealing with stuff that had not been attended to, just a brief part of the history of federated. There had been two major splits in the previous 15 years. Uh, God had really been blessing that church. Two guys came on board as single men. They came as a co-team of pastors. And they took a church of about 400, and God grew it to about 2,500. And they were on TV, and things were going. And then some things started to feed more of an ego than seeking after God. They built this 4,200-seat sanctuary for a church of 2,500. And that began the decline. Things started happening. The two personalities fought each other. Uh, one of the pastors took five staff pastors and 700 people, and he went five miles to the east and started a new church. And then seven years later, the second pastor took five staff pastors and about 1,000 people and went seven miles to the west and started a church. So they were a church planning church as well, just not, <laughs> not in a healthy form. And so coming into that church, you had a lot of baggage that had never been dealt with. There was a lot of, it was like AI. There was sin in the camp that had never been confessed and dealt with. And until that was done, one of those was this associate pastor that both of these, not only the pastor who precipitated the second split, but the the man who was between that pastor and myself, both of them said this individual needed to be fired, but they never felt the support of the leadership in order to accomplish that. And the reason for that is there was a real fear. This individual had enamored himself with the rich and powerful of the church. 
And these individuals were afraid that when he left, he would take people with him. And 14 months after getting there, when I got there, we uh, dealt with him. He was demoted. Then he was put on probation. He got off probation, back on probation, and finally he was terminated. And he and his wife called through the entire church directory and told every family, if you are a friend of ours, you'll leave the church. And over 100 people left the church, many of them high-powered givers. But God was faithful. He replaced that with multiple families who gave less per unit but made up the giving. So God is faithful. And uh, those are things that the leadership was glad to see happening. But it was like Saul and David is how I've described it. When Saul went out to fight Goliath, he stayed back, and then David came in. And Saul said, here's my armor. Go fight the giant. I'm with you, right? But he had no skin in the game. And for me, that's what happened. A lot of times the leadership said, God bless you, we're with you, but they were not engaged. And that part of that was a failure of my leadership because it was my job to bring them along with me, and I allowed them to sit on the sidelines. So one of the things I would do differently here is that if I saw an issue like that, I would not charge headlong into the battle. They said they were with me, but when I looked back, they weren't there. If that happens, I'm coming back and saying, oh, here we go. That was a failure on my part. So we, we allowed a system to develop. And what happened is over three years of dealing with massive problems from that, we had a Christian school within the doors of our church, an 850-member Christian school that then moved out and just transitioning the facility from a dual-use to a single-use facility. And all of the challenges and hurt feelings that came with that, our church isn't committed to Christian education anymore and back and forth. Those were things that I had to deal with. And once all the major crises were over, and now it was time to really begin to build forward, the leadership essentially said, well, we know you as a a battle guy who can get in there and handle this stuff, but now we're not sure if you can engage and collaborate in order to move things forward. Well, part of the problem was you had this divided leadership board because, remember, there was a smaller group that said, we want to go over here. And I wasn't going to go there. And then you had the other group that said, no, this is who we're about. And so you had this split board. And what Federated was looking at was its third major split in 15 years. And we were not going to be a part of that where the name of Christ was going to be bloodied in that community again. And so for the health of that church, we chose to step aside. And by doing so, we withdrew and it forced this smaller group that thought they had the money in the bank, so to speak, to move the ministry in that direction. Now with a new pastor having to come in, they don't have the credibility with the congregation for these type of major swings. And so we're praying that God is going to be God in that situation and that he will prevent things from going the direction they should not go. Um, But I don't see that here. As I've looked at the things that are happening with the leadership, I've seen the elders being men of courage who have stood up and said, we see some things that need to change. And we are going to lead the charge on these things. So that excites me about being able to come into a ministry where I believe the leadership board is going to be in the fight with me. So that's how I think things will be different. Okay, we're going to, excuse me, transition into some leadership and policy questions. How are you doing? You need a drink of water? Sure, I'll get a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Wayside Chapel follows a congregational form of government. How do you balance this with the clear mandate of the New Testament for elder leadership? The first federated church that I was pastoring was a congregational rural government structure, but effectively they were an elder-run church. 
And I think most congregationally run churches are elder run. Now, the Baptist model tends to be a true congregational model, but then they also have a different system where you have the senior pastor who is the sole elder and then a board of deacons, essentially, who typically follow. And in most Baptist churches I'm familiar with, the the senior pastor is king, and he gets anything he wants until he becomes persona non grata, and then he gets fired. And so um, I don't think that's a fully healthy model either. I think that a congregational rule government church can exist with the biblical model of elder. When you look at Acts chapter 4, you essentially had a church that was led by a group of leaders that was really a congregationally led church because there were some churches that did not have functioning leaders for a period of time until they were appointed. But the model you see is where the body brought and laid their gifts at the feet of the leadership and said, we entrust you with this to do the ministry. And so it's the same thing. A church like Wayside that has grown to the size Wayside has and the complexity of ministry really has multiple layers of administration and leadership already. You have men like Bill that are Bill Bradfield that is your interim executive director, Don Venez, who's your business manager, Kevin, who's your financial guru, CPA kind of guy. Uh, I think he's out here somewhere. Um, had to put in a plug for Kevin. He's been uh, kind of plugging me, so I just thought I'd get back at him here. <laughs> you changed my tag. Um, so you already have a functional level of leadership here. And for the average person sitting in the pew who is not here 24-7 on the property, and if I'm brought here as your pastor, I won't be here 24-7 either. But I will be spending the bulk of my time here where most of you or your leaders are not. And so you have to entrust the people that you've brought in. A pastoral position like mine is essentially a vocational elder that is being paid to do the ministry. Your other elders are pastors just like I am. It's just that they are not receiving a paycheck and devoting the same level of time. So if you're going to hire a professional pastor, so to speak, then you've got to entrust him at a certain level to do the ministry along with the other men and women that you've brought on board here. Wayside has almost 40 employees between your pastors, directors, support staff. All of these are essential parts of the ministry, just as your lay leaders are, your small group leaders are, and the people in the pews because the model in the Bible is every member is a minister. We are all part of a priesthood of believers. And you do not pay me to come in here and do ministry. My job description is is in Ephesians 4.11 and following, and it's to equip you to do ministry. And so I'm a player coach. I'm in the game with y'all, and I'm helping you develop, but you're not sitting back and watching me and the handful of other paid staff do ministry. So a congregationally run church essentially is entrusting the running of the church to the leadership and to the pastors and the support staff. It's like Jethro when he came to Moses in Exodus 18, and he told Moses, you can't do it all. You're wearing yourself out. So here's the system, Moses. You take on the big things, and then you entrust the smaller things to the different levels, and then you entrust it to the people under. Well, it's the same thing as a congregation. Y'all are to be engaged in all areas of ministry, but there are things you are going to have to entrust, the bigger things up the ladder, and allow a centralized group of individuals to be able who have more information and more ability to be engaged to handle uh, how things go. So I don't think the two are diametrically opposed. Would you support the wayside no-debt policy? If not, please supply rationale. 
Well, I heard somebody listen to my sermon online and thought that I was a, a big debt person. Um, again, I don't think the individual had all the understanding. Both churches I've pastored, when I came in, they were heavily in debt. Uh, Country Bible Church was a small, struggling church that had gone through some really hard times when we got there. And we were able, with God's blessing, to watch that church grow and grow and grow. And we ended up going through three building projects and multiple renovation projects. When I got to First Federated Church, the first order of business beyond the, the clear things such as teaching the word, loving the people, building the church, but as far as the facilities, the facilities were a wreck. They were an embarrassment. Things were, you know, they were not honoring to God. It was driving people away. It was to get the facility up to speed. And then also to begin, as the church grew, we had to build the facilities. This was the original church here. And now you have a sanctuary out there and other things. And so... Churches grow as God blesses them. And at, at Country Bible Church, we eliminated all the debt, and then every building project we had after that was done debt-free. So we did not institute any additional debt. We eliminated it. We cleared it. We not only built everything, but then we had 37 acres of land for a future facility, and all those things were done debt-free. When I left that church, there was not only land bought and paid for, the entire facility, but a future facility fund that was being funded for the future building. Uh, the church has since gone through two pastors and some hard times, and you know they're not in need of expanding the facility right now. First Federated Church, when I got there, the debt was, was enormous as well, having built this 4,200-seat sanctuary and other things that were done, plus the facilities were in very bad shape. Maintenance had been neglected for a over a decade, and as a result, there were some huge maintenance needs. So there was a need to, to bring the building up to code and up to speed. And uh, in my tenure there for just over, I was there four years and three months, we eliminated a million four in capital debt, and then we did additional things to the facility. We completely renovated all of the children's area. That was a $86,000 project. I mean, because, again, if you're going to reach young families for Christ, what you all did here at Wayside, you've got to have a facility that is going to be safe and engaging. A young family, if you go into their home, they spend all their money and focus on their children. And if I walk into a building and the children's area is substandard, I'm going to turn around and walk right out the door. And you should never let bricks and mortar block the mission of a church. And so there are times that you have to invest capitally into a building. Now, some of y'all are saying, boy, he's dancing really well around that issue. I'm just giving you some, some background. The direct answer is, yes, I can support the debt-free policy. If the debt-free policy is in place and for the future, there is times that there is a strategic debt that you take on short term. The only debt that my family possesses is a mortgage on our house. If I waited until I could buy a house we would still not be in a house. Well, at this point, we could probably be in a house, but it would be, you know, a two-bedroom house where my kids are on top of us. But if Wayside's future is to remain debt-free, then what we need to do is begin to strategically fund a future facility fund because there is already a need. Uh, homes are being purchased over here on the Ivywood area with the desire that potentially the facility is going to be expanded. Parking. Uh, there's a need for a gymnasium as you deal with 100-degree heat in San Antonio, plus the Awana Game Circle is out there. It's a safety issue for children when you have them out there. So in the near future of Wayside, there is going to be some type of large capital expenditure probably. And so what you do is you have to look at it, either funding it through a capital campaign 
or beginning to strategically plan and say in two years we're going to be building a gymnasium or expanding parking or whatever is going to happen and then say we're going to put aside 5% of the existing budget each year into a seed money into that type of fund. So, again, those are large strategic leadership issues that have to be determined. Is Wayside going to expand? What is going to happen? And if so, begin to be proactive in funding that so that you can honor the debt-free policy. So I can support it. It would be wonderful to come into a church not carrying the burden. Uh, our church, where I was pastoring, had a mortgage payment of $32,000 a month. And then that didn't even touch. We had uh, 270,000 square feet under roof. And in the winters in Iowa, we had a $42,000 heating bill with the gas prices that have gone through. So when you have a congregation that is putting out 60% of its budget into a facility, uh, it becomes a noose around the neck of that, of that congregation. So, no, I would not put Wayside into a position where its ministry would be crippled. Uh, Does your vision of church growth include growing to a mega church size or planting churches? Well, I think one thing that some of y'all sitting here today don't know is that Wayside already is a mega church. Uh, by definition, a mega church is a church of 2,000. Now, I've heard different numbers of how big Wayside is, everything from around 1,000 to 1,500 to as high as 3,000. Um, but a church of your size, even if you put 1,500 as the size of Wayside, that puts Wayside in the top 5% of all churches in America. People who are in large churches just assume this is how all churches are. The average church in America is around 100 people. So Wayside is already a mega church. so I wouldn't have to worry about growing it to a mega church size. What happens is how do you manage that? Do you become a reservoir where you say we're all about getting people in the pews here and expanding the kingdom of Wayside, or are you more of a river where you allow people to come and go and find this as an equipping and a planning station as Wayside is already doing? I think you can do both and still realize that you're going to grow. When Pastor Steve came here, Wayside was about 100 people, and over 34 years of great ministry, this church grew under his leadership. And so Pastor Steve grew a small church to a megachurch. So you're already at that size, and you just have to realize you've already grown up. Sometimes you haven't you know, known that. And that's where some of the shift in structures and leadership and other things have had to take place because when it's a church of around 100 or 200, 300 maybe, you're still able to do things a certain way. But once you break past the 400 mark and then once you break past the 750 and then the 1,000 mark, things have to be done differently. So I would see Wayside continuing to do what it's doing and understand that I believe God will continue to bless this local body as well as continuing to use it to grow local churches around this. So, again, you've got to plan for some of that growth. Don't let bricks and mortar be the thing that stifles the mission of Wayside. If the Word of God is being preached powerfully here, people are going to come to know the Lord, people are going to grow in the Lord, and you as grown individuals will be reproducing disciples. My goal is always big people, but big people produce big numbers because you reproduce. So you'll see growth, uh, as you already have, if you've got a church that is focused on the main things, which I believe Wayside is. What is your vision for singles 30 and older? Well, singles are a very hard demographic to deal with, and I'm glad the person broke the question at 30 and older because I worked with the singles ministry at Northwest Bible Church in Dallas, and we had a 1,000-member singles group. And that was predominantly young singles, you know, your 20 to 30. 
And what we would occasionally see is your older singles that would come in, and we broke out a second group that we called SASA, single and single again, because you have divorced singles, you have widowed singles, you have people, people in their 30s have different life needs than somebody in their 20s. Uh, somebody in their 20s is just starting out. Maybe Now, there are very mature 20-year-olds and very immature 50-year-olds, but as a whole, the life issues that you're dealing with are different at those ages. And also, there's a safety issue. You don't want to put a 22, 23-year-old college lady in with a 35-year-old meat market guy, M-E-A-T type of guy. There's a safety issue. I, as a parent, would not want my young daughter being hit on by a 35-year-old. And I know sometimes people marry older, and I'm not, if there's anybody here that has that spread, I'm not talking against you because God can bring blessing. But remember, I was a cop, and I know what happens there, and I was a single guy, and I saw guys come in, and I'd say, you need to leave, and, you know, here's a gun, get out, I said, and no. There, there are safety issues, there are life stage issues, there are a number of things. So I think you have to have two different type of single groups, for older singles, younger singles. And the other thing you need to recognize is singles are often seen as second-class citizens in a church. And part of that is the language we use. We talk about families. And we forget that if you are a single individual, then, well, I'm not a family. So you have to use inclusive language that lets them know they are a part of the wayside family. It's just like when I do a baby dedication, and we thank God for the blessing of children. And if you are a barren woman or man that is sitting out there in the pew, it cuts right to your heart. And having gone through 12 years of infertility, I know that, and I try to be sensitive and always address that issue. And so what we have to do is start to use language that doesn't denigrate that demographic of the church. That's one level. The other is to recognize the worth of those individuals. Many times, if you're a single person, people think of you as a project, you know, <laughs> right? I, I have somebody I want to introduce you to, or I have a daughter, or I have a son, and so all of a sudden, the person, you know, has this, I'm a loser stamped on their head, I need you, you know, to help me. The Bible says that singleness is a gift. There are individuals that God has called to singleness, and recognize that maybe some of your single friends are that way because God wants them to be that way. And they are content in their singleness. And, and as helpful as you're trying to be, sometimes you are very hurtful in how you approach them. So you have to be careful in that. But you include them in things. We would do that at our churches where instead of having like a dinner eight group where you would say you have to be a couple, we called them feast groups, friends eating and sharing together. And it was the same concept. Whether you were a family with children or a single individual, we invited you to sign up, and we just had a block that you could check. I would like to be in a group with children, without children. And some singles love being around children because they don't have them themselves, and they want to have that influence and, and connectivity. So those are things that you just start to create systems that let them know that they're valued and that they are gifted individuals that you want to engage in the church as well. And just trying to find ways when you make a mistake and you hurt them because you've said something that is hurtful, being able to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I wasn't thinking, will you forgive me? And if God calls me here as your pastor, please love me enough to come to me and tell me when I've hurt you. Don't just walk out the door and say, we're leaving. At least come and tell me that I hurt you so I can either fix it or make sure I don't hurt somebody else by doing the same thing. Okay. As our potential pastor, vocational elder, 
What role do you see others uh, see the other elders at Wayside in the discipling process of the flock under their care? Well, I think it's a rhetorical question because the person, essentially what they say, the elders should be engaged in the discipling process. Uh, they should be engaged at all levels. One of the qualifications of an elder is that they're able to teach. Now, again, we sometimes think that's only a pulpit ministry, but there can be just as effective one-on-one ministry. You may be a very gifted teacher, but your role as a man or a woman is a mentor. Now, I don't believe women are elders, so don't say, oh, I heard him say. I'm sure a women leadership issue will come up, so I'm just going to shoot myself in the foot right there. But what happens here is able to teach may be a one-on-one mentoring relationship, or it may be an ABF an adult Bible fellowship, or it may be a pulpit ministry situation. So I think that elders should be engaged at those levels. They are to be equipping, they are to be shepherding, overseeing the the flock as well. So I think that the elders walk alongside the paid pastors and uh, just different levels of responsibility. A follow-up sort of, how will you identify whether or not the current elders in fact qualify to teach and instruct the sheep entrusted to them with sound doctrine. Well, here again, I'm sure that Pastor Steve and the existing leadership has already done a good job vetting your current board. So what I would do is come in and essentially watch those who are already holding the office of elder. And if I see areas of deficiency or concern, then I would go to that individual and I would say to them, you know, these are things that I see. How can I walk alongside, help develop you, correct it, and, you know, go through the process that way but I think that I would trust those who are in place already are are qualified and then we're just as I would anything any person in the pew if I can come alongside them and coach them in areas of deficiency that's where I would work with them knowing that sound doctrine will not be popular in the latter days how will you measure success at Wayside well you're right what's right isn't always popular and what's popular isn't right And so what you do is you go to the Word of God, and this is how I measure success. When I stand before God, the Hebrews tells me that I will be be held accountable to God for what I've taught, and that scares me to death because every Sunday when I stand up and preach, I know that whatever I say, I will be held accountable to God, and that scares me. And so I spend a lot of time in prayer and preparation and try to always be accurate. My measure of success is... Is it in the Bible? You know, the Bible commended the Bereans for searching the Scriptures to see if what was being taught was right. And that's the same thing. If I ever teach something and you as a person in the pew or the leadership or a staff pastor comes to me and says, "Um, Roger, show me where you're getting that, and I can't show you, then I shouldn't be teaching it. So this is my foundation, and this is how I measure success. Was I true to the Word of God? And if so, maybe half the pews will empty out because they won't like what I'm saying. But y'all are not the final vote for me. It's when I stand before the Lord and he says to me, either well done, good and faithful servant, or Roger, Roger, you know. <laughs> You're going to smell like a fire sale. Most of your rewards are gone, you know. So that's, that's my standard of success is whether I hear well done, good and faithful servant. This person says, we experienced problems at our previous church with the senior pastor making all the decisions, basically running the church with the elders becoming rubber stamps to this agenda. We were pleased that Wayside had accountability, checks between the elders and pastoral staff. 
How do you view the relationship between the elder board and the senior pastor? Well, the elder board includes the senior pastor. You know, a senior pastor in a church is in an interesting situation because when you look at, if there was a little board here I'd drawn, a senior pastor in a church is essentially the primary teaching pastor in a church most of the time. And so in one level, he is the spiritual leader not only of the congregation but of the elder board. And yet he is also an equal member of the elders where he is no different, a voting member of the board, and he's also under the elder board as an employee of the church and held responsible. And so you have to kind of dance between these three roles. And so the accountability structure is already built into place if the church is functioning according to the Word of God. And, and I believe Wayside is doing that, so I don't see any issue here where I'm going to be, be the king. So, What is your philosophy towards small groups that are sponsored by and accountable to the church? Well, I think that small groups are a key component of the church. And if God leads me here, that's an area that I would work with John Gordon, I think, is over the connections area to help develop. Because as a church grows larger, it has to grow smaller. Y'all can sit in the pews and never know anybody. And if there's a need, I and even your current paid staff of pastors will not be able to meet every need of everybody here in the church. The Bible talks about the community of believers. And so we have to have a model of ministry that as Wayside has grown larger to grow it smaller, that's going to be ABS as your connection points where you have people who know you. This afternoon I was with my wife and I were with the Home Builders ABF. And there was a group of individuals who all knew each other, knew each other's kids, were involved in each other's lives, and they were able to provide the care. So if there's a need in that family... That's going to be their primary connection point of ministry. A small group takes that even to a smaller stage where people know each other on a more intimate basis. So I think you have to have that model. I think you have to have groups that are not fully under a centralized. I'm not saying that everybody has to you know, put their thumbprint on every decision made within a small group. I've heard Wayside described as an entrepreneurial church where there's a spirit here where a lot of ministries have grown up and, and done things. And that's wonderful at a certain level, but there can also become a point where it's the book of Judges where every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. And there's an inability for the church to suddenly function as a church. It's kind of like the difference between a Pony Express and a stagecoach. A Pony Express is where each person was running their mail separately on a horse. And if you've ever looked at the weight they could carry, it was a minimal amount of weight. Yet if you took the same number of horses, that say six to eight horses that were running just a small amount of mail, and you hooked them together into a team, they could then pull a stagecoach, which could pull heavy freight and large amounts of mail and move people as well. And that's what the church needs to do. Some of these you know, turf shepherd type of ministries that we're over here doing our thing our way with our resources if they were harnessed together, they would have a greater kingdom impact. And so what you do is it's not that you're going to come in and whack off a bunch of ministries and say, no good, gone, because... But there comes a point where you have to say, what are our vision and values? And you use that as a funnel to bring ministries together to then pull the church together in one cohesive direction. So I think some level, it's not that oversight of small groups becomes so that there can be control, but so that you can make them better. You can offer training. You can offer help for the teachers. You can offer curriculum. You can then enfold new believers or 
new people into the church, into these groups to help them grow and multiply and do those type of things. So that would be an area that I'd work heavily with John Gordon and others who are already in place doing those things. Uh, as we come to closing time, there's a couple of personal questions. We'll go back to personal, okay? What do you want to see God do through you? On the front of my resume, I put this my heart's desire to be a pastor of a church that wants to see families built. And again, when I say families, I mean individuals. So I think I even termed it singles and families built up into strong reproducing believers. Um, as I said, my job description is in Ephesians 4:11 and following. I'm not to do the ministry. I'm to equip you to do the ministry. So what I want to do is come in here and equip you, help you guys be resourced, help you grow up, help release you uh, from ministry so that we can reach the community of San Antonio from Castle Hills to beyond and what Wayside is already doing very effectively into the world. So what I want to see God do through me is essentially come in here and help Wayside write the next chapter of its history and see this church continue to be strong in its foundational uh, strengths and moving forward into the, the next season of ministry. What do you enjoy most about ministry? Watching people cross the line of faith. For me, nothing excites me more than seeing somebody say, I got it, and then receive the Lord. And uh, just as I think about people and uh, that God has given me the privilege of helping lead to the Lord, just, just seeing people cross that line of faith. Some of them have been so far away from God. Some of them have been so close to God. And just helping them to understand that paid in full concept where they quit serving God out of fear and they begin to serve him out of freedom and a response of love to him. Okay, what word or words would Kim use to best describe you? <laughs> She's right here, and she uh, I think what she'd say is George Bailey. <laughs> if you know who George Bailey is, he's the guy in It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, she's called me George Bailey several times over 18 years of marriage, so I think that's an accurate word uh, that she would use for me. And the reason for that is she says, I think about other people before I think about myself, and uh, sometimes to my own detriment, and I'm, I'm learning balance in that situation, but um, I am a lot like George Bailey, who never gets to leave Bedford Falls. And, uh, but God has given me great opportunity. I've, I've had the privilege of traveling the world and teaching in seminaries and being parts of ministries that I could never have even dreamed of, including... Just the honor, whether you all call me as your pastor or not, just the privilege of being able to preach tomorrow here at Wayside and just knowing this is a great church. So God has given me opportunity that I would never have if I were not in ministry. But um, I think that's, is that how you describe me? All right. You can give her the mic and see if she has anything to add. <laughs> and finally, uh, as we draw to the close here, uh, just just like to, you have been here several times. You have met uh, either one-on-one -on -one or in very small groups, almost 100 people in leadership at this church. Would you tell us where you are? Uh, we realize that you have said you're, you're willing to accept the call. Yeah. 
But where are you as you've met these people and you've answered hard questions, uh, even some harder than tonight, and you've met those people and you've heard about their ministries and you've heard about Wayside, where are you? Well, I'm excited about Wayside. Again, I know a lot about y'all from, and not only people like Jeff, you know, the Internet is a wonderful tool. You can Google Wayside Chapel and find out all kinds of things about you guys. Uh, So some of y'all are going to go home and Google and see what comes up. (laughs) I think this is a very strong church. Certainly there are opportunities and challenges here. If you were a perfect church, I wouldn't be here because I'd ruin you. So you don't want me if you're perfect. Because uh, I'm not perfect either. And uh, I see a church that is not only currently effectively reaching this community, but is poised to reach this community in new ways. Uh, many churches have moved out to the suburbs. And I know that a large number of y'all are driving in from the suburbs, which speaks to the strength of this ministry that you would bypass several really good ministries that are out there. So I hope you keep making the drive in if God calls me here. But I think as many of these churches are moving out, it leaves less of an impact for the community around here. And uh, you've got to remember what a strategic location you were in right here in the heart of San Antonio on this inner loop and just the ability to minister to the community around you. And uh, so I'm excited about the possibility of coming here and seeing this church have an even greater impact into Uh, My model of ministry is Acts 1-8. You start locally and you go globally. And I think Wayside is doing very well at the global end of the scale. And I think we would be doing some work to strengthen the local side of the scale, which I know Rick is already doing a good job underway, kind of getting some of those programs and things in place. And just as I've heard about the, the diverse group of ministries as I met with the missions committee the other night and just all the exciting things that are happening with them, um, I think Wayside, some of y'all, I, I heard the leadership was asked by one person, if if Roger's so good and he's qualified, why does he want to come here? Um, <laughs> we've talked to a lot of churches, a lot of very strong, great churches, some three times the size of Wayside. And we have certain non-negotiables that my wife and I are looking for. And missions, a heart for world missions is one of those. We tried to be a missionary. When we came right out of seminary, we tried to go to Russia and pioneer a ministry to Russian police. That's a whole other story for another time, but God closed the doors on that. So part of what I said is he wants me to be a sending pastor. He doesn't want me on the field. He wants me to be in a church where we're equipping and sending. And every church that I've pastored, we've seen people homegrown come up through the pews that are placed into ministry. And we've also been a church that has come alongside those already called, and we support them financially and in prayer. And so that's a role that is very important that I think Wayside is accomplishing. A church that is non-compromising of the Word of God. Churches today are moving away from teaching some of the hard truths because people, you know, are driven away, they say, by truth. And yet I think they're wrong. Many seekers that I talk to, what they're looking for are absolute truth. Uh, they come to churches wanting to hear that you've got, you've got the answers. Now, we don't have all the answers, but we have the answer. And we don't always know what or why, but we know who to point them to. And so seekers today want absolute truth. And if there is a church that is not interested in having the Word of God taught, then I'm not your man. And so as I look at Wayside, I believe this is a church. Pastor Steve has given you all a fantastic foundation. Russell Keffler, I've heard so many great things about his ministry before God called him home. 
And just like J. Vernon McGee, he's still speaking from beyond the grave through his tapes and ministry. And so this is a church that has been about the Word of God being taught. And uh, I'm excited about being able to come into a church potentially and be unapologetic about teaching the Word of God and hopefully doing it in a culturally relevant way. I'll have to learn the voice of Wayside and, and San Antonio, uh, but I believe that God's given me the gifts and experience to come alongside you all and join you in the, the journey he's already started here. Thank you. <laughs> well, we'll see if you do that after tomorrow. No, don't. <laughs> we're, we're just excited to be here, and thank you all for that. That was really nice. Thank you. Well, I think, uh, as Roger said, you can see why some of us are excited and looking forward to this. We, uh, we hope you will fill the church tomorrow. And uh, I'd like to just close praying for them and us in our, in our search as we go along. Father, we love you, and we, uh, we care about what you uh, would have us do. And so uh, in this big process of searching for a pastor, if we, are, uh, if we are there, Father, would you make it clear to everyone here tonight and all the rest of the body, uh, and uh, as, we, as we complete this process, if this is that completion, would you just uh, uh, would you honor us with clarity? And, uh, and faith and trust uh, that we can come to that point. Thank you, Father, for a great evening, and uh, we just ask your blessing on tomorrow and the rest of the weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.